Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to Garden Church Podcast. This is a unique series. I have some friends coming in and they're bringing what they're carrying on their heart. They're bringing passion sermons. And I'm so excited for you to listen to this series. For more information about Garden Church and how to follow the way of Jesus, how to live life to its fullest, empowered by the Holy Spirit, go to garden.church, get plugged in. God bless you guys. Have a great week. It's an absolute joy to be here. I love this Friends of the Family series and I genuinely do feel like family. Um, Partly because I've been praying for this church for the best part of a decade. Darren and I are in a group of pastors. We meet um, for a week every single year and we made a decision many years back that we were going to track one another's stories and intentionally walk together. So we gather, as I say, for a week each year. We laugh, we cry, we open up the scriptures, we pray for one another. And because we've been on this journey, I I know your story pretty well. I feel a deep connection to your story. So to be here this morning, it feels like I'm amongst family. So thank you for the invite. It's an absolute privilege to be here. I want to start with a, a story that frames this message, but maybe more than that, frames the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. So my name's Pete. I'm married to B. Together we lead this church in central London. We've got three kids, Benj, Josh, Olive, 14, 12, 10. Pray for us. We're entering the teenage years. Um, But rewind the clock, maybe seven, eight years ago, I went through a routine every single night. I just want to emphasize that, every single night. So I would put the kids to bed one by one. Um, B and I would eventually go to bed, we'd fall asleep. And then around two or three in the morning, I'd hear a voice. And the voice went something like this. Daddy... Daddy, and I did what any loving parent would do. I ignored that voice, (laughs) but it was persistent. Daddy, daddy. So I rebuked that voice in the name of Jesus. But the voice continued, Daddy. Um, so my wife would eventually like elbow me, kick me and say, look, one of the kids is shouting for you. So I'd run upstairs, I'd find the room and I'd enter the room. And, and normally one of the kids would say something like this, Dad, I think there's a monster under the bed. I genuinely think there's a monster under the bed. So I would look under the bed because you never know. I'd, I'd look under the bed and I'd be like, no, absolutely no monsters under the bed. They normally hide in the wardrobe anyway, but there's no monsters under the bed. And then they'd say, but there's a shadowy figure in the corner of the room. And normally a teddy or an item of clothing was casting a shadow. So I'd I'd go and deal with that. And then they'd say something like, but I think there might be a fox in the house. So we have a problem with urban foxes where we live. They jump over the the back wall into our garden. And the kids would be like, "I I think one of them maybe has got into the house. And and I'd say, no, there's only one fox in this house and that's your mum. And she's fast asleep right now. (laughs) She's fast asleep right now. No other foxes in this house. Um, And eventually they'd calm down. And at that point, I would get into bed with them. I'd hold them in my arms. I'd tell them that I love them and that daddy's here. And eventually we'd both fall to sleep and we'd wake up um, at daylight. Now, because that happened every single evening over the course of years, I think I learned something significant about the antidote to fear and more specifically the antidote to the fear of the dark. And the antidote to the fear of the dark isn't just the arrival of daylight. I'm spiritually speaking right now. The antidote to the fear of the dark is the presence of the Father. 
So culturally speaking, this is a moment of darkness, right? That we feel this, that if you read the stats and listen to the stories of, of people trying to navigate this moment, they'll talk about rising levels of anxiety and despair levels being sky high and suicide rates in Western cities and Western contexts constantly growing. It feels pretty frightening right now, culturally speaking. But what is the Spirit doing in a moment like this? And it seems to me what the Spirit is doing is drawing us into the presence of the Father. Now we're praying for daylight, aren't we? Like we're knocking on the door of heaven. This is what we're doing in central London at KXC. This is what you guys are doing here at Garden Church. We're knocking on the door of heaven saying, Lord, would you pour out your Spirit? We wanna be caught up in a fresh move of the Spirit, a revival in the church that brings an awakening in the surrounding culture. We want the dawn to break in upon us, right? So we're praying for daylight. But it seems what the Spirit is doing right now is drawing us into the embrace of the Father, to experience the presence of the Father. It feels like a really beautiful thing the Spirit is doing right now. Let me share a bit of a testimony of what happened to me this year. So we've been praying for, for daylight, for the Spirit to be poured out in the context of London, but we've been experiencing an invitation closer to the presence of God. And in February, I had the opportunity to go and visit um, a context that was experiencing an outpouring of the Spirit. I went to visit Asbury. Now, some of you will know the story of the Asbury outpouring. Some of you may not be familiar. So this is the story on the 8th of February this year in a tiny nowhere town called Wilmore, um, population 6,000 or something like that, at a university there, Asbury University, there was a compulsory chapel service, right? And at this compulsory chapel service, apparently the service itself was average. I spoke to the guy called Zach who preached um, and after the, the service, he phoned his wife and said, look, I've just preached at chapel. It went horribly. Could you put some fried food in the oven. I need comfort food. I'm not talking salad. Fry it. I want comfort food. So he felt like he'd had a really, you know, shocker of a sermon. He went home, but at the end of this compulsory chapel service, 19 students didn't leave the auditorium. They came to the front, they clung to the altar rails, desperate to get right with God, and the Spirit fell in power. Now, over the next hours, rumours started to spread across this campus that the Spirit's doing something significant in the, the sanctuary space. So people started returning. It started with dozens. It became hundreds. Um, and this one hour chapel service led to 16 days of nonstop 24 seven prayer and worship. And estimates suggest that over those 16 days, over 100,000 people from all over the globe went to visit to experience this outpouring of the Spirit. And I got this privileged opportunity to go and visit. So I get on a plane, fly to Kentucky, arrive in Lexington, hire a car, um, drive to Wilmore, park up the car and walk towards this Hughes Auditorium, which is just a cracking name for an auditorium. Um, and I, I step inside the auditorium with, with anticipation. What am I going to find? Um, and what I witnessed as I walked into the room was both totally underwhelming and simultaneously totally overwhelming. 
It was underwhelming in the sense that it was just a room like this with people singing and worshipping. The sound system, like, wasn't great. It didn't sound fantastic, right? The songs they were singing were pretty average. One of them was Here I Am to Worship, which is an awful song. That's my brother's song, by the way, I can say that. Um, there, there was no lighting rig. There were no smoke machines. There were no lyrics at all on any screens, right? It, it was underwhelming. I was like, everyone's talking about this. Like the sort of curiosity levels back home are through the roof, but like this feels pretty ordinary. And, and then my eyes were open to the extraordinary. Like what was going on and what was going on was the presence of God was thick in the room like overwhelmed by the presence of God. People weren't mesmerised with production. They were mesmerised with presence, hungry for the presence of Jesus. There were stories of students at the university dragging their mattresses into the auditorium during those 16 days because they didn't even want to go back to their rooms to sleep. Such was the hunger for the presence. There were stories of students packing three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, because they didn't even want to sleep step outside of the auditorium for a snack. The hunger levels were through the roof. And just looking across the room, the encounters happening, it was just the most beautiful thing you could imagine. Now, I shared some of my story when I preached at Garden a year or two ago, but I, I was born in the late 70s. So my sort of like childhood years were the 80s, which was a kind of like a great season in terms of culture, Star Wars, Back to the Future, Pet Shop Boys, glory, glory years. Um, but something significant was happening in the church too. It started actually here in California, came to the UK. We often refer to it as the charismatic renewal movement, the spirit moving in power in such a way to transform the spiritual landscape of the church in the UK. So as a seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old, what became a new norm for me? Because when you experience this stuff as a kid, it does become a new norm. A new norm for me was being in gatherings like this, where the power of God was so present, watching grown men and women weep as they encounter healing. That was a norm. Seeing people shake and fall under the power of God, that was a new norm. Listening to people scream as they were being set free from demonic oppression, that didn't freak me out as a child because it became a new norm. Like hearing people laugh uncontrollably, not because of a gag from the preacher, but because the joy of the Lord was filling them, that was a new norm. This became a new norm for me, right? And, and that's the norm of the kingdom of God when the power of the Spirit moves. So when I heard about the outpouring at Asbury, I was expecting more of the same, right? Because we've not been seeing all of that stuff in the UK, right? So I was like, maybe we're just gonna be stepping into what became a norm in my childhood years. But when I stepped into Asbury, it wasn't like that. This felt like fresh. The Spirit was doing something different. If the charismatic renewal movement of the 80s and 90s was about the church rediscovering the power of the Spirit, this felt like a moment where the church was reprioritizing the presence of God. Now, I believe it's both and, right? But the power and the purposes of God ride on the wings of His presence. And we've neglected His presence. And this felt like a move of the Spirit where God was pouring out His presence and drawing us into an embrace. We've been knocking on the door, right? For a move of God, for daylight to break in upon us. And it feels like the Spirit's saying, get ready for that. But right now, I want to bless you with the presence of your Father who's going to hold you 
in the darkness and say, it's all right, daddy's here and daylight's coming, daylight's coming. I believe we're in a moment, a significant moment um, that I believe is a shift from winter to spring. Let me read you this text. Um, This is Song of Songs, chapter two. Um, Imagine the, the Spirit just speaking this over you as a church garden. So my beloved spoke and said to me, arise my darling, my beautiful one, garden church, come with me. See the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, garden church. My darling, my beautiful one, come with me. I believe we're experiencing, and, and Asbury's one part of it, but we're seeing this now in the UK. We're experiencing some of this at KXC. But if you listen to pastors across the UK, across the US, I've just come back from South Africa, across South Africa, across many, many different contexts, pastors are saying the same thing. The spiritual atmosphere is shifting. The hunger levels in the room when we gather, they're just growing. Like the appetite for the presence of God and the the sense of the manifest presence of God in the room when we gather, it's rising. The sound of our singing is getting louder. The faith levels are rising. The Spirit's up to something. Like in my sense is that this is a moment where winter is passing and spring is breaking in upon us, right? And what marks the shift from winter to spring? Well, biblically speaking, if we lean into the metaphor, the shift from winter to spring is marked out by spring rains. Right, and what what are spring rains? It's not a deluge, it's a gentleness and it grows in intensity and these spring rains water the land, soften the ground and prepare the ground for abundance. Like I, I believe we're at the beginning of that kind of shift. To switch metaphor, we've been in darkness, but I genuinely believe in my gut like daylight's coming, like daylight's coming. To switch, switch the metaphor one more time, We've been living in a wilderness moment, right? But maybe the rains are about to turn the wilderness place into a place of abundance and we as the church need to get ready. Now, just to articulate what the wilderness actually feels like, I wanna read from some of the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, I I know you know what the wilderness feels like because we've all been walking through it. COVID, COVID recovery. But I wanna zoom out because actually this goes way back before COVID. That as the secular grip has got stronger, it's been incredibly challenging for us to be the people of God in a cultural moment like this. We've experienced the wilderness, but listen to to some of the language of the prophets as they articulate what the wilderness looks like, feels like. This is the prophet Joel. He says, the fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up, heartbreaking. The olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Summary would be there's there's no wine. There's no wine. Listen to this text then, Isaiah. Um, Isaiah articulating something similar. He says, a 10 acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. The summary is that there's no wine. 
No wine. The answer is always going to be wine if you want to play this game. Um, participation. Um, next passage then, Jeremiah chapter 8. Another prophet who says, I'll take away the harvest. This is God speaking to the people, declares the Lord. There'll be no grapes on the vine. There'll be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. Summary is that there will be no wine. It will always be wine. Um, no wine. No wine. This has been the challenge of this last season in the church. We've been learning to be faithful in adversity, in some really challenging situations and contexts. Um, we've been learning to be faithful in adversity. But can I just be really honest and, and name what for most of us that's actually felt like? We've been learning to survive scarcity. Because on our darker days in COVID, pre-COVID, in COVID recovery mode, some of us honestly, mentally, emotionally, physically, we've been bracing for impact and just trying to get by. Like struggling with despair and anxieties, like I just got to get through this. I'm just praying desperately that rains begin to fall. I've just got to get through this. Head down, brace for impact, survival mindset. Right, what it's actually felt like for many of us in the room. I know we can present one thing at church, you know, have the embrace, right? But what it's actually felt like for many of us in the room, we've been surviving scarcity, right? But what happens when the rains start falling in the wilderness? Well, let's listen to some of the same prophetic figures. Joel, Joel chapter three says, in that day, the mountains will drip new. Always going to be wine. And the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow from the Lord's house and will water the valleys. Amos says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. This is the prophet saying it. And, and what if the Spirit is saying this to the church right now? You need to get ready. You've been in a wasteland moment. You've had a mindset of surviving scarcity, but a moment is coming when the rains begin to fall, where sowing and reaping will happen simultaneously because there will be such abundance. You need to get ready. This is the prophet readying the people of God. And what if the Spirit was readying God and church for a season of abundance? New will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I'll bring my people Israel back from exile they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them they will plant vineyards and drink there they will make gardens and eat their fruits we've been in a mindset of surviving scarcity what if there was a new challenge for us and it was learning to steward abundance now this shift from surviving scarcity to stewarding abundance, it is gonna require us to be attentive to what the Spirit is doing, the new thing the Spirit is doing. It's springing up, can you perceive it? Garden Church, can you perceive it? This is happening, not just in the context of, of California, across the globe, pastors are saying the same stuff. Hunger levels rising, sense of the manifest presence of God when we gather, rising. Church rediscovering a confidence when they sing and proclaim the arrival of God. God's kingdom. This is the shift from surviving scarcity to stewarding abundance. How do we know? Because we can see spring rains are beginning to fall. New wine is beginning to be poured out. <laughs> Respect that. That's someone leaning in right there. That's my love language. Um, now, you know this, and I know this because Jesus said this, that when new wine is being poured out, you need new wineskins. Because if you don't have new wineskins, both the wine and the wineskins will get destroyed. 
So if new wine is being poured out right now, we need to be in a moment of discernment. What are the new wineskins, the new ways of being and doing church and hosting God's presence? And we're asking that question in the context of central London. Lord, your spirit is moving in a fresh way and we are beyond excited by what's stirring. But you're going to have to help us because we need to figure out what are the new wineskins that are going to help channel what you're doing to our church and through our church, the context of central London, right? So I don't know what it looks like in London, let alone what it looks like in the context of California, right? So I'm not going to tell you this is what the the new wineskins need to look like. You guys will need to discern that. But I think I have stumbled across some things that feel like absolute priorities to the heart of the Father for the moment of the Spirit that we're in. And I submit these to you, right? You you can dismiss them, disagree, but I just want to say what I, I sense and see the Spirit doing in a moment like this. So these are some of the priorities. Number one, consecration really matters. Joshua 3, 5, consecrate yourselves today, God says, tomorrow I'm going to do extraordinary things amongst you. And we're knocking on the door of heaven. We want the extraordinary things, a revival in the church that leads to an awakening in the surrounding culture. We're knocking on the door of heaven for that, for the great things. But it seems like the Lord is saying, right now you need to consecrate yourself. You need to get ready for what I'm about to do. If you want to ascend the hill of the Lord, and we do, don't we? Yeah, at least four people do. It's encouraging. If you, if you want to ascend the hill of the Lord, this is Psalm 24, you're going to need clean hands and you're going to need a pure heart. And this is what I see happening, stirring in the younger generation. The hunger for the presence of God, it's through the roof. And they're climbing up the mountain, right? Carrying all these idols and all this baggage. And they get to the point where they're like, I'm so hungry to progress, but I'm coming to the realisation there are things in the way. I need clean hands and a pure heart. So I'm going to deal with all this stuff because my hunger for the presence is such, I will do whatever it takes to keep climbing, to experiencing more of God's presence. I saw this at Asbury. Um, What happened, as I said, this one-hour chapel service becomes 16 days of 24-7 prayer and worship. Now, when you're a worship leader in a move of the Spirit, that means there's non-stop worship. That's exhausting, right? So they they discover early on that they're going to need to do sort of like shifts of worship. So a worship leader would come up up with a very small band. You'd do 90 minutes. You'd do every song you know, and then you'd do it again. And then you'd do it again, right? And then you'd pass on the baton and someone else would do 90 minutes. And it was just like nonstop worship. But they basically realised that one of the, the key things of what the Lord was doing in the room was consecration. So they basically said, we need to prepare ourselves to lead people into this kind of sense of God's presence. So they basically got rid of the green room you know, the place of snacks and nibbles for VIPs. They're like, sack off the green room. Who needs a green room, right? Um, We need a consecration room. Like, so they created a consecration room before anyone stepped on stage. Worship leader, musician, someone praying, someone leading a devotion from the front, someone on ministry team. They had to spend half an hour in the consecration room getting ready. There were intercessors and prophets in the consecration room. And these 19, 20, 21 year old students, worship leaders would spend half an hour on their face before God, trying to get right with God, confess their sins, seek His face. So by the time they stepped out of the consecration room and onto the stage to lead people in worship, the purity of the worship was like nothing you've ever seen before. It was so beautiful. Sounded horrific at times, but the purity of it was extraordinary. 
like big worship artists from the States were watching the live stream and emailing into some of the key leaders at Asbury saying, look, we've watched the, the live stream. Um, it sounds horrific. It sounds like you need our help. We're happy to fly in and wave our fee, or at least have it, um, and, and, and lead you guys in worship. And the response was, no thanks. Like everyone in this room is, is mesmerized by presence, not by the performers or by production. So if you want to get on a plane and witness what the Lord is doing in the room, you're welcome, but we don't need you to come and lead. So these artists were flying in to Kentucky to watch their songs being butchered by 19-year-old <laughs> worship leaders, but learning how to lead people in the presence of God learning how to climb the mountain, right? This is a picture of the, the Asbury Auditorium, the Hughes Auditorium, but just notice the banner over the room, holiness unto the Lord, holiness unto the Lord. If, if you've studied any revival history, you'll know this, that preceding any significant move of the Spirit, there are two forerunners. Number one, the church starts praying with passion, not with apathy, like desperation levels rise, they get on their knees and they start knocking on the door of heaven for daylight to break in upon them, for the dawn from on high to break in upon them. Here's the second thing, and it starts normally with young people. They start taking holiness seriously. They basically start saying, Lord, I realise in your presence that my sin is actually a big deal. And I'm so desperate to keep climbing this mountain. Like, give me Please, Lord, give me clean hands and a pure heart. I, I confess and want to dethrone all the idols, all the places I've been going to to get a fix, to satisfy the cravings of my soul. I am sorry. I repent. Clean hands, pure hearts. I'm so, so hungry for your presence. And what I witnessed at Asbury, what we're seeing in central London, what I'm hearing from pastors across the place, particularly amongst the young people, but it's spreading. There's an interest in holiness again, Right? In an age of such compromise, young people are taking holiness seriously. How beautiful is that? Give us clean hands and a pure heart. Here's the second priority, that confession of sin, it really matters. This is linked to the consecration piece. But what I witnessed at Asbury and what we're seeing now at KXC, and again, particularly amongst the young, but it's spreading, is a desperate desire to create spaces where people can confess their sins. Right At Asbury, there were queues to get in to the auditorium. Like at one point, it was a six hour queue just to get in the room. The police had to get involved because the whole town was basically struggling to cope with how many people were visiting. So there was a queue for six hours to get into the room. But when you were in the room, um, there were queues to get to the front to receive prayer. Now the queues would be like rows and rows deep, normally 19, 20, 21 year old students in the queue. And when they got to the front and, and it wasn't like, I'm here because I want to receive power. It wasn't like that kind of prayer. It's like, I'm here because I want to confess my sin. This isn't about receiving primarily. I, I want to offload all my sin, right? Um, and they'd spend like half an hour just pouring it all out. So I spoke to this one lady, Helen, who spoke me through how she was leading these people in prayers of confession. And she named four C's as a little journey she would take them on. So number one, why don't you just confess your sins? What would you like to confess? And they would turn the tap on, right? And it would just begin to flow all of their darkest thoughts, all of what they've been up to, just naming sexual sins, areas of human brokenness and fragility and suicidal ideation, all of it just pouring out, pouring out because they're so hungry for the presence. It's just all pouring out, right? 
Um, and then after about 20, 25 minutes, they'd sort of like come to an end. And she would say, okay, here's the second C. I want you to cancel any permission you've given to the enemy to be at work in your life because of those sins, right? So these young students would, would start, you know, cancelling permission, basically praying, Lord, like, thank you that you wash away my sin. I now ask that you would cancel any permission I've given to the enemy to be at work in my life because of those sins. I say to the enemy, you have zero permission to be at work in my thinking, in my heart, in my soul, in my body, in my being. If I've accidentally given you keys and access to be at work in my life, I take the keys back. You are not welcome. I cancel any permission. Confession of sins. Cancel permission given to the enemy. Number three, command all darkness to leave. So these timid 19, 20, 21 year olds becoming bold in prayer. I command all darkness to be gone, right? Which leaves an empty space. Number four, come Holy Spirit. And into that empty space, the Spirit of God falling and moving in power. Now you'd expect an atmosphere of 2,000 students confessing their darkest thoughts to be a heavy atmosphere where you would struggle to breathe like, <gasps> right? It wasn't like that. This was the most joyful atmosphere you could possibly experience, right? People would come, leave all their baggage at the foot of the cross and they would return skipping. Like the countenance of their faces, like shifted joy in their beings. The celebration in that place was extraordinary. Confess, confession leading to celebration. Totally beautiful. Here's one of the things I noticed in that journey that the place of confession became the place of deliverance, the place of freedom. And we in the church need to rediscover deliverance ministry. Like we've neglected it. We've been sort of slightly anxious about it and we've shrunk back from it. But the darkness is so great, we cannot shrink back any longer. We need to step back into deliverance ministry. I've noticed this trend amongst younger pastors. Um, I consider myself pretty young in my mid-40s, but a young amongst younger pastors and therefore um, people in churches like ours, like Garden, like, like KXE. In the last few years, there's been a rediscovery of spiritual formation and a hunger for spiritual formation. Everyone has read Ruthless Elim Elimination of Hurry. Everyone has ruthlessly eliminated Hurry. I tell our staff team, I want you to speed up now and actually do some work. I know you've tried to ruthlessly eliminate Hurry. Can you speed up and do some work, right? So everyone's been leaning into like spiritual disciplines, talking about Sabbath and their Sabbath plans and, and how they're going to start fasting in between meals as a step towards actually fasting meals um, and how they're trying to memorise scripture and have moments of solitude. But honestly, Give it a few weeks, maybe months. They'll often come back to me and say something like this, Pete, I've been doing all these disciplines and, and I'm not getting free. And I feel honestly quite discouraged and slightly disillusioned. I've read all the spiritual formation stuff, but I'm not getting free. And my answer is always the same. The spiritual disciplines aren't meant to get you free. The blood of Jesus sets you free. The cross of Jesus sets you free. What the spiritual disciplines do is help you enjoy the freedom that is given to you through the cross as pure gift. Like think of the Exodus narrative, slavery in Egypt towards the promised land. The deliverance moment is the Red Sea. What do they contribute to their deliverance? Nothing. Pure gift. 
pure grace, God moves his hand, the waters part, and then they journey through on dry land. They journey through the wilderness. They have this climactic moment at Mount Sinai. He gives them the law as a pathway to human flourishing, principles to help them enjoy the freedom that's been given to them as pure gift. Notice God doesn't give them the law when they're in Egypt as a way of getting free. Freedom is gift, pure deliverance. The law comes later to help them enjoy their freedom. The cross is the moment of deliverance where we are set free. And then the spiritual disciplines help us enjoy our freedom. And I think a younger generation are beginning to learn this. They've been going after spiritual formation. We've neglected deliverance, but deliverance then leads to discipleship. Freedom first and then into formation. And I think in the church we're rediscovering, partly because the darkness is so intense, we need to step back into deliverance ministry. Now, the reason some of us freak out about deliverance ministry is partly because of the concern of the overlap with mental health, of like, like demonic oppression, mental health. Where does one begin, one end? And it's, it's a grey zone and that creates some anxiety. But honestly, some of us are scared because we've watched Netflix and some models of exorcisms, all of that stuff, you're like, no thanks, right? But the model of deliverance I'm beginning to see is a really gentle model. It's a really humble model an unbelievably powerful model. And it starts with confession of sin. Confess sin. Cancel permission given to the enemy. Command darkness to go. Come Holy Spirit. And watch the transformation begin to unfold. Here's the third thing then. Confidence in the gospel really matters. Like a few days in Asbury, I saw hundreds of people coming to faith. Um, and now, you know, in the context of London, an aggressively secular city, right? We're seeing crazy levels of spiritual openness. Like there's a spiritual hunger level in the church that's extraordinary. But what you need to wake up and realise is there's a spiritual openness in the surrounding culture that's equally extraordinary. And we need to recognise the landscape is shifting. Spring rains are falling. There's an openness. And we should be really excited by this. We're seeing this, honestly, like most weeks, people walking in off the streets into our gatherings, basically saying the scripts that I've been handed, the secular scripts that I've been given, they ain't working for me anymore. My anxiety levels are through the roof. I'm drowning in despair. And I've heard that, that, that I might experience hope here. Could someone pray for me? Now, this was happening before every so often. Now it's pretty much weekly. The hunger levels are rising. Let me give you a story to illustrate this. This is my good friend, Iona. Um, she's godmum to our three kids and she was travelling to Belfast for the 24-7 prayer conference and en route she basically stopped off at Luton Airport at the mat counter to um, feed her addiction um, to buy some makeup and at the mat counter she starts talking to this lady and she says to the lady I love your necklace what a beautiful crystal that is and this lady says oh thank you well I'm deeply spiritual I'm deep into the new age and this crystal is actually part of it explains something of the story of the crystal. And Iona says, I, I'm deeply spiritual too. I'm a follower of Jesus. I love praying for people. And um, what can I pray for you? This lady's a little bit taken back, but essentially says, well, if, if you want to pray, you can. Um, I'm in chronic back pain. Like it's, it's really intense. Could you pray for that? 
So Iona, in the middle of the Max door, lays a hand on her back, says, come Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd bring your healing power to this lady. I, I pray an end to the chronic back pain. And Lord, while you're at it, would you open her eyes to see Jesus? Amen. And then basically says, we haven't even exchanged names. I'm Iona. And she says, oh, I'm Harina. And Iona says, that's a really beautiful name. Do you even know what it means? And Harina says, it means chosen but I don't know what I'm chosen for, which is an open door. Um, so Iona says, well, I believe you're chosen by God and he wants relationship with you. Conversation ends, Iona gets on her flight. Um, fast forward two months, she's flying through uh, Luton Airport for a, a work thing and she goes to the Mac counter to feed her addiction. Um, Harina's not there, so she moves on to the perfume um, area and then hears this voice, Iona! And it's Harina. She literally comes running up and Harina says, I can't believe you remember my name. And they start talking and Harina says, can I tell you the story of what's happened to me over the last couple of months? Do you remember when you prayed for me? When you prayed, this like cooling gel filled my body and I haven't had any pain in my back since that moment. I, I got home. I basically said to my dad, there's no kind of Christian faith in our sort of family. I said to my dad, dad, I think there's power in the name of Jesus. He was fairly disinterested. Um, a couple of days later, she phones her psychic because she was deep into the new age um, and basically wants to process some of what's going on with her psychic. And the psychic almost begins by saying, look, I'm really sorry, Harina. I don't do any of that stuff anymore. I've basically given my life to Jesus. Um, so I've left all of that stuff behind. So Harina's like, say what? Um, she basically goes to her dad after that and says, dad, do, do we have a Bible in the house anywhere? And the dad says, I think there might be one actually. They eventually find it. It's the, the grandmother's old Bible. Um, Harina prays, she says, Lord, as I open this to read it, would you reveal yourself to me? And she opens it up, front page, and it says Iona in, on the front page of the Bible. Now, Iona's listening to this story. And she says, are you sure it was the Bible? Because I've read the Bible. Iona doesn't actually appear in the Bible. You definitely read in the Bible, not another spiritual text. Um, and Harina basically gets out her phone, shows a photo and the name of the font of that particular Bible was Iona Clearface Font, right? But for Harina, that was like, ah, God's at work. Um, she starts reading it. Her life is transformed by it. She surrenders her life to Jesus. She rocks up on her own to a local church, becomes part of the family. And this is a picture of her baptism only a little while ago. To the cynics in the room, you know who you are and your friends know who you are. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know visiting speakers bring their best stories. I know that. I know that when people travel, they take their best stories and they, you know, share the stories to build faith in the room. Like, that's normal. But I want to say this. Like, if you hear those stories like once or twice a year, it boosts faith. But when these stories are happening like monthly, maybe even weekly, you tend to take note and think something's shifting here. Like a few weeks ago, this Buddhist guy walked into our cafe at church. He finds our associate pastor and he says, look, I'm Buddhist by background. I've read quite a lot. The most compelling person in human history is the person of Jesus. Could you introduce me to him? Right? That's easy pickings. Like you, you, you can't screw that up, can you? Like, my friend, social pastor, just led him to faith, right? 
Like, that's like a story from the Gospels. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you come to the right place. Let me talk to you, right? Now, if this stuff is happening every few months, that's great, right? But when it's happening monthly, maybe even weekly, you begin to recognise something shifting here. The atmosphere is changing. And in the UK, at least, we've got data now that speaks of this. Right, so again, think of London, aggressively secular context. In 2017, some research was done called the Talking Jesus Research. How much openness was there to faith, but more specifically to the person of Jesus? Um, and the research suggested that one in every five individuals was open to the person of Jesus, curious, and more than that, would really enjoy a conversation with someone about the person of Jesus, his claims, his life. Like one in every five. Five years later, 2022, um, the research was redone. Now, in the UK context, it's one in every three. So if you were to get out your phone, and this is London, aggressively secular, one in every three in your contact list is waiting for a conversation about faith and is curious about the person of Jesus. This is unbelievable. There is a spiritual hunger rising in the church, but there is a spiritual openness in the surrounding culture where people are tearing up the script, saying the secular narratives, they do not work. I'm so scared. I'm drowning in despair. I'm anxious all of the time. Is there a better story? If there is, could someone tell me the better the story, right? And in the church, so many of us are operating in a surviving scarcity mindset with this kind of like conversation. The landscape's so challenging. The circular grip is so strong. No one's interested in Christianity. No one's open to the person of Jesus. It's so hard being a follower of Jesus in the context like this, right? If you think that, can I just say, statistically thinking, you're probably wrong now. Because the level of openness is extraordinary like one in every three, and the church needs to wake up. A season shift is happening. Spring rains are falling. There is more openness than you could get your head and heart around. Um, faith comes through hearing, right? If people are going to hear this good news, this better story, the church needs to rise up and rediscover confidence in the gospel and start proclaiming it. And when we do, it won't be a trickle of people coming to faith through Alpha. It will be a tidal wave. And it won't just be Alpha. It'll be in Sunday gatherings. It will be in every single gathering. And we need to prepare for it. We need to prepare to steward abundance. Here's the final thing then. We need to champion the next generation. Listen to these words from a, a theologian who went to visit the Asbury outpouring. He said, there was no leader, no rival, no envy, no pride, no celebs. All humility, meekness, gentle hearts, stumbling sinners, tender students serving thousands of curious visitors in their love for mercy without knowing they're doing so. It's legit. Gen Z writers are graciously allowing us to peek in on this surprising work of God as they serve us like priests, unconsciously dragging us into the presence of the Lord through young, redeemed, romantic hearts for God. Christ is being honoured. God is being glorified. The Spirit is at liberty. The real, awkward, cringeworthy gawkers are the over 40s like myself who can't put down their phones. The Zs left theirs at home. Now, in terms of grades of the miraculous, if the resurrection is here, water into wine here, Z's leaving their phones at home, for me, is about there, right? <laughs> I, I count that as a miracle. I've got kids. I, I see that as miraculous. And, and here's the thing, like, when the presence of God is thick in the room, why would you be consuming content on your phone? When you come to the realisation that everything your soul craves is in the room and he has a name, his name is Jesus, you don't need your phone you won't even need to capture it because your soul will be delighting in the person that you've been longing for. 
what I saw at Asbury is something of generational succession, where the followers, the Gen Zs, were becoming the leaders, the leaders were becoming the parents, and the parents were becoming the grandparents, and a generation was rising up with hunger and faith, and it was beautiful. My, my conviction leaving Asbury in the last few months of leading KXC is, I just need to get out of the way. There are people carrying fire. I don't want to get in the way. Lord, Lord help me lead differently in this moment. Um, followers becoming leaders, leaders becoming parents, parents becoming grandparents. If you're under the age of 25 in this room, I want to say to you, this is your time, this is your turn. Like across many different contexts, the consistent message is coming through from pastors, the next generation are rising up. They've been written off, but they're rising up, carrying spiritual fire. Get ready, get ready. If you're a leader in the room, whether that be inside the church or outside the context of the church, here's what I want to say. Your leadership days aren't done, but you might need to add to your leadership the art of spiritual parenting, and they are fundamentally different. Leaders are driven by destination. They constantly cast vision for there. They're vision junkies. Let's go there. New building, new service, new ministry program, new project. They're constantly casting vision. And what good leaders do is they create an unsettled feeling about here. If they can convince followers that here sucks and that would be amazing, when people sort of like come to that realisation, they're like, they're right. This does suck. It's awful, but that looks amazing. Let's move. Then you get movement. Leaders are driven individuals and they're driven by destination. Parents operate fundamentally differently. Parents aren't driven by destination. They seek to be present with delight, present with joy. When I get home from work, my kids want me to be playing soccer in the garden. And that breaks my heart because we call it football. Football in the garden, right? And they want me to be dancing around the kitchen to the, the latest pop song or playing FIFA on the PlayStation. They want me to be physically, emotionally, mentally present with them having fun, right? They don't want me to be casting vision for how playing football in a bigger garden would be so much better. Or like, just imagine if we're dancing around a bigger kitchen to a better song. Or just imagine if we were playing FIFA on the PlayStation 5 because the graphics on the PlayStation 4 are inadequate. Like, they, they don't want that. They want me to be present with delight and they need me to be present with delight. And when you're ministering in the context of trauma, and we are, because most of us have experienced some measure of trauma in the last months and years, if you just have more vision junkies, there, 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 it creates high levels of anxiety and despair. But when you have spiritual parents who are basically saying, look, I'm going to be with you on the journey. Daylight's coming, but the Lord has us in this moment. And can you see what's happening? There's a hunger in the church and there's an openness in the surrounding culture and the Spirit's moving in power. And these are extraordinary days to be alive. And I know you're emotionally fragile and you're carrying wounds and some brokenness, but it's okay, God is with us. He'll heal and restore us and he's leading us to green pastures and still waters where our innermost beings will be replenished. What a moment to be alive. When people start functioning like spiritual parents, the followers become the leaders and a generation rises up. This is what I've witnessed. Followers becoming leaders, leaders becoming parents, parents becoming grandparents, and everyone gets to play. I don't know what the new wineskin's gonna look like for you at Garden Church. 
You're going to have to figure that out. The Spirit will reveal it. But I do see these as priorities. Consecration matters. If you want to ascend the hill of the Lord, you're going to need clean hands and a pure heart. You, you won't get to the top without it. Confession of sin matters. Confess. Cancel permission. Command darkness to leave. Come Holy Spirit. And the place of confession will become the place of deliverance. Confidence in the gospel matters. The openness is extraordinary, but we need to rise up with the belief that the gospel transforms lives and therefore we're going to proclaim it. Faith comes through hearing. Championing the next generation matters. This is a succession moment. We shouldn't be grasping onto things, but letting go and inviting people into the story. Let me close with this. A little while ago, a lady in our church, Emma Heddle, very prophetic figure, has a great track record of just sensing what the Lord would want to say to our church family. And she gave this message about a season shift coming, a threshold moment in our church. And it's proved to be very true for our church community. But I've been sort of like processing it and recognising this wasn't just a word for our church, that perhaps this is a word for the church. Because this season shift I've been articulating, pastors left, right and centre articulating the very same thing, right? So I want to read it to you. Um, but garden more than that, I want to read it over you. I want to prophesy this over you. I believe you're in this season as much as we are at KXE. So I hope this encourages you. Threshold moments, in other words, season shifts, are equally beautiful and terrifying. They have the capacity to make or break the vision. As you stand on the cusp of everything you've ever dared, hope for. You survey the land that now lies before you, your eyes tracing the intricate shapes that settle on the horizon. Too good to imagine. This is what has been stirring for so long. This has been the cry of your heart for years, hidden deep down, but now here it is. That first glimpse of dream turned reality within reach, right before your very eyes. So nearly there. And as you stand there at the threshold of everything you've ever dared dream about, with that cocktail of excitement and fear rising in equal measure, that other voice kicks in. The one that gently tells you to take a step back from the threshold. It whispers to you that passing through that door will have its costs. It's too good to be true. Or even worse, what lies in front of you is all a mirage and you'd be foolish to walk through. It will disappear as soon as you enter. It's better to survey the land from the doorway, to distance yourself from it just in case, to stand at the threshold just watching it's better to quietly let the dream die now before sacrifices are made, bridges are burned and there's no safe way back. Threshold moments of power. Many see them as the end of a long journey. They finally glimpse what their hearts have longed for, but they stop exhausted and find themselves settling in the doorway to all they've hoped for, never actually crossing through and taking hold of it. Tired and exhausted, they find contentment in the reasoning that they've made it this far that they can see it from a distance. But the truth is that these threshold moments are just the start of the adventure. They're only just the beginning. So step in, take courage and move forward, Garden Church. You've been called for such a time as this. Why don't we stand? Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast served you. I hope that this sermon inspired you and encouraged you to follow the way of Jesus. Garden Church, we exist as a local church and we would love to resource you wherever you are. So if you're not part of our local community plugged into a house church, that's fine. 
We'd love for you to follow along on the journey. For more information on following the way of Jesus, being a disciple today, living naturally supernatural lifestyle, go to garden.church. Continue to listen along. God bless you.